The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to the book of Acts, chapter 20. Uh, Acts, chapter 20. At the end of September, I had intended that we had reached the end of this series on the church. But then there were a couple of issues that I thought that I still wanted to talk about. And that's why you got a message this morning uh, on the necessity of church membership. And then I also wanted to revisit uh, once again Matthew 16, 18, where we're talking about the perpetuity of the church. And uh, we're going to look at that in just a moment, but also Acts chapter 20, if you find that scripture. Uh, Our series has been a long one, but I do think it's been a profitable one, and I really don't think we can do any harm by going back to the subject of the church again this evening and and doing it often, as a matter of fact. Uh, This is not the end of our messages on the church, but I'm never going to preach another one. Of course, I will. But this is the end of our series, and then we're going to move on to another topic. And our subject again this evening is a final reflection on the promise that Christ made in Matthew 16, 18. You're all familiar with it, uh, where Christ said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And in that verse, we find the promise of perpetuity for the church. And we've seen that promise fulfilled over and over again as we've gone through those many, many weeks where we were talking about church history. And we're actually here tonight because the Lord has always been faithful to that promise that he made. But I want us to notice something that's very crucial about what Christ did not say in that particular text of Matthew 16, 18. Now, of course, it is important what he did say, and I don't like to make arguments from silence, but I do think this is one that's supported by other scriptures. And what Christ did not say in that text of Matthew 16, 18, is that he gave a promise to preserve every individual church. That promise is not in that scripture. Now, he did promise to preserve it as an institution, but not every individual church. And we know that's true. Because that very first church that was started in Jerusalem is no longer in existence today. The church at Antioch that became the center of missions where the Apostle Paul uh, was sent out from, that church is no longer in existence. None of the churches that we read about in the New Testament is in existence today. And I can tell you that also means the church at Rome, because the church at Rome was not the Roman Catholic Church. So that church is not in existence today. And then if we go to the text of Revelation chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus was giving a message to the seven churches of Asia, he had a promise there that if those churches did not repent and return to him and love him as they should and preach the doctrines of the faith and be faithful to that, that he would remove their status as being one of his true churches. Now, as an example of that, he wrote to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, verse 5, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. 
Now, as we read Revelation 2 and 3, those are churches that are representative of churches that are in all ages. And there's a warning that the Lord gives us there. He is the Lord of His church. And He can preserve the church, and He will preserve the church. But He doesn't promise to do that if a church has not, is not faithful to the Word of God. If, the word, if the, a church is not teaching the Word of God as it should, then He will cease blessing that church and withhold His promise to preserve it. And, as he said there in, in those chapters, that that church would be no longer his. So what I'd like to talk to you about tonight uh, is, is the ways that we can preserve our church. I mean, we do have this warning that's laid out in front of us, and the power of preservation is the Lord's. But as usual, the Lord uses means to accomplish his work and his will. And his means in this case of preserving his church is the faithfulness of his people. Now I'd like you to look at this passage in Acts chapter 20. And we're going to use this as a, as a launching pad for a discussion of how to preserve our church. In Acts chapter 20, in verse number 25, this, this story is about the Apostle Paul. And he's the one who's speaking here. And now behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Now, those words are Paul's last message to the Ephesian elders. Now, what Paul had done is he called them together to this place at Miletus, and there he talked to them about these issues. Eventually, he was going to become a prisoner of Rome. And this was the last time that he would be able to see the elders of the Ephesian church in, in person. So he, he met them at Miletus. And there he gave them words of encouragement, but also words of warning. And he told them that they must be faithful to preach the gospel. And that they must be aware that there was great danger to the church if they didn't heed the warnings that he gave. And if they didn't heed those warnings, then their church would cease to exist. Now what we want to do tonight is to look at these warnings and to apply them to the Berean Baptist Church in 2014 so that we can clearly understand what we have to do to preserve our church in this location as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the first thing that I'd like you to see tonight, why this is so important, is the price of the church. I mean, if you want to know why that we are so diligent to protect our church, then you must understand the high price or the value that Christ has placed upon this place called his church. Now, the purchase price is given to us in the 28th verse of Acts 20, where Paul says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock 
over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Now, a few years ago, my wife and I were exceedingly blessed when the Lord enabled us to, to buy a house in Santa Rosa. Uh, since moving to California, we'd not been able to buy a house. We, we sold our house in Kentucky, but the property values, the great disparity between property values there and here, uh, didn't give us enough of a, a down payment, what we received from our, the sale of our house, enough of a down payment to actually buy a house here in Santa Rosa or in Santa Rosa. And uh, so we weren't able to buy a house, but then, as we all know, the economic downturn came, property values went down, and some of you I know were victims of that. To you it became a curse, to me it became a blessing, because when the property values came down, then we were able actually to buy a house, and the Lord made that work out for us. And if you really want to hear a miraculous story of how everything was put together, how everything came together in the providence of God that allowed us to buy a house, I'd like to tell you that story sometime. I don't have time to do it tonight, but if you want to ask me about it, I'd be happy to tell you how the Lord really worked that thing out. It was by His power and by His grace that that actually happened. But when we think about a house, a house is usually our most valuable possession. And we show that by these exorbitant prices that we pay in this area, and, and then signing our lives away on a 30-year loan in order to own a home. And I realize there are some of you that a house is still out of reach, but there are, and it would have been for me if not for the Lord's intervention, but there are other things that, that you place high value upon. For some people, it's their car, maybe a Benz or a, or a BMW, or if you should come to your senses and you want to get the very best value for your money, then you would buy a Honda or a Miata, of course, and that would be the right thing to do. But there are certainly things that, that we do cherish, whether it's a home, whether it's a car, jewelry, whatever it might be. There are things that we value, and we show the value of them by the way that we protect them and the high price that we place upon them. Well, when the Lord decided that he was going to purchase his people, he didn't write a check for it. He didn't go to Luther Burbank Savings and get a loan. Because John has told us that Luther Burbank doesn't make loans. There is no loan at Luther Burbank Savings. Is that right, John? But anyway, he didn't go there. He didn't go there in order to, uh, to get a loan for it. And even though the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and it tells us that the wealth of the entire world belongs to him, none of that was great enough, none of that was costly enough to pay the price of what it took to redeem his people. And so the Word of God tells us the price that was paid, and it tells us that it was His own precious blood. The book of Ephesians tells us that it was His life. Ephesians 5.25 says that He gave His life for His church. And that tells you that He has purchased this, and it's worth it to Him to protect this church and to preserve it because He gave His life for it. And with such a high price that's paid, there should be none of us that can doubt that God wants us to give our utmost, the very best that we have, the most effort that we can give in order to preserve his church, to remain faithful to him, to preserve the body that is his. If he was willing to give so much for it, doesn't he expect us to give everything, for us to give everything to keep a church here in Roner Park? 
Now, I want you to know that and consider that just as Paul asked the Ephesian elders to consider it. This is the price that Christ has paid for his church. And he made the same point to the church at Corinth where he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. Now, if you ever want to know, how, how do we glorify God? What's the best way that we can glorify God? The way that we do it is to keep the trust that he has given us. We glorify him by giving our all to keep his church going. So, consider that price. Consider the, the price of what Christ paid for the church when you have other things that you want to do on Sundays. Consider the price when there are things that keep you out of the fellowship of God's people. Consider the price when you want to take God's money to keep up your lifestyle. Consider that price because it's far better for you to lose your house, the thing that you think is valuable, to lose your car, to lose your even your own life, than to let the Lord Jesus Christ church suffer. So we consider the price... And we consider the price when we lend our talents to help the ministry here. We consider the price when the bad example that we present before the world tears down the work of the church, the testimony of the church. So we're his church, and what we do, what we do is either going to preserve his church or it's going to destroy it. And that's because we're the means. We're the means of the way that God preserves his church. Now, the second thing that I'd like you to know is the potential of the church. Why do we have a church? Why are we spending our lives here? Why do we give our money to this church? Why do we lend our talents to the church? I'm sure you have friends and relatives that ask the same question. They don't understand why you're doing this. They don't understand why you've dedicated your time here and why you put so much money into this place. They, they, that doesn't make any sense to them. Well, why do we do this? Well, we talked about the high price that Christ paid. That would be one reason. But another reason is the massive potential of the church. I mean, what is it that the church can actually do for this world? What is it that the church does? Well, I know that there are some churches that have given up on the gospel and they've begun to spend their time fighting political, political battles. Uh, they spend their time in politics and trying to change the government and trying to change all the laws of the country to make it more favorable for Christians. And so they have abandoned the work of the church, which is the gospel of Christ, in order to concentrate on social issues, maybe fighting uh, AIDS or fighting poverty or whatever it might be, when in fact the church actually has the potential to correct all of those problems, but not by the methods that most churches want to use. Now the way that we fight crime and fight abortion and the way that people are, are helped and, and social injustices are ended is not by the power of the government. It's by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now Brother Dalton made a good point in his sermon a few weeks ago on Sunday night. He said that Ronert Park may not know this, but they need this church. This community needs this church. And the reason they need it is because the potential is here to actually change the world. And the world is changed when lives are recreated in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now probably 
the greatest compliment that was ever paid to the church is found right here in the book of Acts. I want you to turn back just a few pages to Acts chapter 17. And this is the great chapter where we take the name, Berean Baptist Church. And in the 17th chapter, or rather the, yeah, 17th chapter in verse number 6, it says, And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. Now, we won't take time to relate the story. I just want you to look at that, that last line, what they said about these Christians. These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. That is perhaps the greatest compliment about the church that we have in the scriptures. That the world, the whole world's order, the way of thinking was turned upside down by the preaching of the gospel. Now, it's not a bad thing to turn the world upside down. And that's because the world is not right side up. It needs to be turned up the other way in order to get put back on the right track. And that is exactly what the gospel does. The preaching of the gospel is for the purpose of restoring what was destroyed when the world was put upside down by the sin of Adam. And this is what we do when we preach Jesus Christ. We turn people around into the right way. We set things up in the order where God wants it to be. And the only place that's going to be able to do that is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you want an example of that, we see it in, in what the Bible has to say about the gospel in the time of the millennium. The whole world is changed in that time by the gospel. You see how it changes here in Isaiah 11, verse 9, where it's talking about the millennial kingdom. It says, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You want to get rid of wars? You want to get rid of a social injustice? You want to get rid of the problems that we go through in this world? Preach the gospel. Let it permeate the entire world. And the Bible tells us that when the knowledge of Jesus Christ covers the world from sea to sea, then everything changes. And that's what we have to look at. It's a different world when people know about Christ. Church stands for holiness and righteousness. And so the church is the instrument of change for the world. Now we can see a little bit of an example of that in what we've studied in the past few weeks when we've been talking about church history. And what we've learned is that it was actually Baptists that gave the world the first taste of religious freedom. It was Baptists that insisted that freedom of religion should be put into our Constitution. Baptists have always believed in soul liberty, and the greatest liberty that we can have is to know Jesus Christ. Jesus said, If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. And so we see how much potential that the church has. And what happened was that when the church slipped, America slipped. When we stopped doing our duty, when we stopped preaching the word, the social order of this world worsened. And that's why today we're dealing with gay marriages and abortion and legalized pot and rampant pornography. It's because the people of God haven't done their job. The church has so much potential to help people and to change the world. 
But let me also hasten to add that the church is the only place that will change the world. That's the point, that part of the point that I was trying to make with, with this morning's message. This is the church's responsibility. God hasn't given it to anybody else. Parachurch organizations are not going to do it. The government of this country is not going to do it. The governments of the world are not disposed towards Jesus Christ. And so no matter how much you hope for it, it's not going to happen. And we know it's not going to happen because the Bible tells us it won't happen. That doesn't mean you stop praying. You, stop and you, you, you continue to encourage. You continue to pray that God will bless us. But ultimately we know this, that if we're not doing something, God's not doing anything. God's not going to help if God's people are not doing what they've been called to do. So there is no one else in the world that, that is going to do God's work. It's only done by the church. And so I'm telling you, if we don't do it, it's not going to get done. And here's the real problem of it all. What good is a church to Jesus Christ that doesn't do what he wants it to do? And the answer to that question is, no good. And that's why you have churches that fade away into non-existence. Why would Christ keep the church? Well, the answer is he won't. He's not going to keep alive what's determined to die. Now, ultimately, across the world, there will be some church, maybe more than one church, I don't know how many, that will keep things going until he comes again. But I can tell you the promise is not for us right here if we are not doing what he's called us to do. So if we don't want to keep the church, then let's stop doing God's work. Let's change our Bible. Let's leave our Bibles at home. Let's don't bring it to church anymore like many churches are doing now. Let's start preaching the Joel Osteen version and let's see how long that we survive. Now you say, well, he's doing so well. He, he's, his church is growing. He's got 50,000 people or more in church every Sunday. He's doing so well. And there's a reason that he does so well. It's not because it's the Lord's church. It's because men love darkness rather than light. And there is no darkness as great as a bloodless gospel that he preaches. So you can expect that's going to grow. But here's the thing, folks. Families need the church. This neighborhood that we are in, this, they need the church. But do you really understand how important the church is? And do you realize that by your actions, many times you show how important that you think that God's church is? Let me ask you this. Why do we have an empty parking lot on Wednesday nights? How do we expect sinners to be impressed with the things of God if God's people aren't impressed with the things of God? You know, I think people are more impressed with an empty parking lot than they are a full one on a Sunday morning. Oh, this is the world, what the world expects. I mean, we have a church here on this corner. It's prominent on this corner. They would expect you're going to have a full parking lot on Sunday morning, and we should. But when they know that there's another service during the week, and they don't see hardly anybody that comes to that service, then they're starting to get a picture of how people really feel about their church. How impressed are they with the work of God in the church? And so you see what people think and how valuable their church is by the amount of commitment that they make to it. The measurement of how they feel about their church and shows how much the church is worth is by what they do for it, by how they attend it, by how they support it, by all the things that they do that the, that, that the church says that we need to do. Now, when we start having a Friday night service 
or a Saturday night service so that we can get it over with and you can have the rest of the weekend for yourself, then we'll prove, like many people have done, what we really think of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and what it's worth. And that sacrifice that Christ made, how much was it worth? So the church has so much potential to change the world, and that is exactly what Christ expects us to do. He loved the world. He said that. He loved the world. And so he expects that the church is going to get that message out. He loves the world, and he wants the world to be saved. And if we're not doing that in word and in deed, then why would Christ preserve us? He won't. Now, the next thing that we need to look at is the persecution of the church. And from our study, we're well acquainted with persecution. Uh, we've looked at history, and we've seen it throughout history. Paul speaks of persecution in verses 29 and 30. He said, For I know this, <clears throat> that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Now isn't it amazing that there is so much potential of the church for good, and yet it's so hated by the world? I mean, there, there's nothing that many people around here would like better than to see this church gone from this corner. A few years ago, we had an investor make an offer to buy this property. And his idea was that he was going to put up a strip mall in, right on this corner. And as bad as that would be for the neighborhood, I think that there are people that would prefer that rather than to have a church here on this corner. And I know that because we have people that complain about a banner that we put out, uh, what, what the message on a banner, the message on our signboard. We know that people don't like this church here. They'd love to see us gone. And it's small wonder that that would be true. I mean, with this potential that we have to do so much good, it's still no wonder that this is what the world would do to us because it's exactly what they did to Christ. What did he do? He changed lives. He helped people. He gave people hope when there was no hope. And yet, they took him to a cross and crucified him. So the church has enemies. And here Paul describes two types of enemies. Now first, there is the enemy without Grievous wolves shall enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, why does he use the analogy of wolves? Well, I can give you a little personal experience on that. That's the way I felt this morning when Brian Petro asked his question and threw me to the wolves today. Um, and I had to uh, defend uh, both sides of that position, it seemed like. And so I felt like I was thrown to the wolves. But, but why does he use the analogy of wolves here? Well, one of the characteristics of wolves that really makes them so scary is that you don't often see a lone wolf. A wolf is a pack animal. A wolf wants help. A wolf wants to get support. He wants to muster support. Now, one wolf, one lone wolf, that wolf can do damage, but not the kind of damage that a whole pack of wolves does. Another reason is because wolves like to, walk, uh, like to work in the dark. I remember my grandfather had a farm in northwest Arkansas that he had a small forest on the back side of his property and in that forest there were timber wolves and at night you could hear those wolves howling and my grandfather knew that those wolves were a danger to his cattle and so sometimes in the morning he would go out after the wolves had been active and he would go out to check the herd and see how it was and sometimes 
the wolf had killed a calf. And the wolves like to do that because they like to attack the weak. And that's what wolves do. They attack the weak. So they came out at night and attacked the weak calves. Now, Paul compares the, the enemies of the cross to a pack of wolves. He said this in Philippians chapter 3. He said, beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. And that was an interesting way of putting this for him because when you see dogs in the scriptures... When there's examples of dogs given that compare to people, it almost always, almost always refers to Gentiles. But here the Apostle Paul is comparing them to Jews. Actually Jews who are supposed to be the people of God. And so he says, beware of the dogs. And what he's talking about is these, are these Jews that would come and take these nubile Gentile converts and try to destroy their faith by bringing them back under the old doctrines of the law of circumcision. So Paul says, beware of them. And the Bible tells us these kinds are outside, they're everywhere around us. Jesus said in Matthew 7:15, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Now sometimes we get the wrong picture of what that scripture is actually saying. Wolves in sheep's clothing does not mean that a wolf comes dressed like a sheep. It's not talking about the sheep, it's talking about the shepherd. And that's because shepherds made their clothes out of the wool of a sheep. And so the wolf here is referring to a false shepherd. And that's what the wolf does, the false teachers do. They, they come and they attack the flock by pretending to be the shepherd and ha- at pretending to be the helpers of the sheep. And we see this going on all over the world today as the airwaves are filled with false shepherds. Now, there are packs of them. There are packs of them on TBN. You know, I think a name change is in order for, for that would be much more appropriate. It would be WBN, the Wolf Broadcasting Network, because there, that's the network of, of Joyce Meyer and T.D. Jakes and Joel Osteen and Kenneth Copeland and a pack of other wolves. And what they do is they, they, they prey on the unsuspecting in churches that don't know any better. That's what a wolf does. He preys on the spiritually weak. And so if we're going to preserve our church, what we have to do is keep the wolves out. And I would tell you, don't buy those books that they print. Don't read that junk. Don't watch them on TV. Don't listen to what they have to say because they're wolves. They're a pack of wolves that are going to destroy the church. And I'll tell you this also, and maybe some of you won't like it, but if you find a Baptist on TBN, abandon him also. Shut him off. Don't listen to him because a Baptist on TBN has to be someone who has compromised the faith because he wouldn't be on that channel biting the hand that feeds him if he was telling the, and telling the truth. So don't, don't think that you see a Baptist on TBN and suddenly you found some great oasis in, the, in this world of spiritual darkness. Stick with your church. Stick with the preaching of the gospel in your church. And if you do find something good on some other networks or whatever, listen to some good things and stay away from that pack of wolves on TBN. So there is this enemy without. They come from the religious world and they come from the non-religious world. But I'm telling you, the very worst are the religious ones. And that's because the world expects something from them, something better from them. But they don't have anything better at all. They're far worse than the unreligious world in affecting the lives of God's people. So there is this enemy without. Now, just to show you that 
The devil has many wiles, many tactics. He also tells us, Paul tells us in this scripture, that there is an enemy within. Verse number 30. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Now the worst enemy and the greatest grief to a pastor is the enemy within. It's the church member that wants to factionalize. It's a church member who opposes the pulpit and the teaching of God's word. That's the worst enemy that you'll find in the church. It's the one who ruins the harmony of God's people. Proverbs says that there are seven things that are an abomination to the Lord. And I think there are a whole lot more than seven. But because seven of them are given space in Proverbs chapter 6, you have to think that these are probably the worst of all the abominations to the Lord. You know what number seven is? He that sows discord among the brethren. Now, can you imagine how bad that is for the Lord's church? This is the church that he gave his precious blood to redeem. This is the church that he gave his life for, the one that he gave up the riches of heaven that he abandoned the riches of heaven in order to come to us, and he came to us to bring us into the unity of the faith? And so how bad is it for someone to factionalize, to cut a unified body into pieces by sowing discord? How bad is it for someone under the guise of friendship and love and compassion to be in our church and try to tear down what what we work so hard to build? Sounds like Judas, doesn't it? And this is what Paul said, Galatians 5, But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one another. When he spoke to the church at Corinth, he said, When I come, I don't want to find divisions among you. Jesus said that a house divided against itself cannot stand. Division will destroy a church. And what we're trying to do is to preserve it. So how do we preserve it? We do it by loving and forgiving our brethren, not sowing discord with them. Colossians chapter 3 says, Put on therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Now, you might look at the context of those verses in the book of Colossians, and you'll understand why this is so important. Colossians is filled with unparalleled statements about Christ. It says, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. That ought to strike fear into your heart. You better be careful about what you do with God's church. This is his body, and he's sworn to preserve it. So how do we protect the church? Well, we keep those divisions out. We keep them out by considering others to be better than ourselves. We don't fight with one another. We forgive one another. We overlook the transgressions of others. We bear their burdens. We love them. When a gossip comes to you, you stop it right there. You head it off at that point. A person can't sow discord with others if nobody's willing to listen. Whenever somebody comes and speaks against me, stop it right there. 
Say to that person, don't speak against God's under-shepherd and then tell them, I'm going to pray for you that God will remove your bitter spirit of division. And I promise you, if you say that to the person, they're not going to approach you again with some kind of gossip about me or anybody else. I mean, they're not going to be around long if they come up against church members who want to hold things together rather than tearing things apart. Well, one other point, one more point that we need to remember about preserving the church. Number four is the power of the church. Now, the best news in all of this is that the church has the power to keep from being defeated. We don't have to lay down in front of the devil and let him run over us. We don't don't have to give in to the devil. We don't have to be defeated by him. And and, and know this, be, be sure you understand this very well, that every attempt against the church, whether inside, outside, whether it's by a member of this church, any attempt to tear down God's work is a work of the devil. And so when someone comes to you with the same issues that I've just talked about, then you know that they're not sent from God. The Spirit of God is not there. That is the Spirit of Antichrist. Or as the Word of God, that's the Spirit of the devil. So you mark that down and you, and you understand that, that that's, that's who we're up against every time that there's an attack against the church. Now, I think that one of the most impressive statistics for a church is the age of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. This was Spurgeon's church, and it's a Baptist church, by the way, and uh, if you ever see a picture of the facade of that church, you'll see that plainly in the front of it, it says that it is a Baptist church, but it's been called the Metropolitan Tabernacle for many years. That was Spurgeon's church, but Spurgeon wasn't the first pastor of it. The church started in 1650 at a time when Baptists were banned from having open meetings. 364 years ago, they started that church. That's four centuries. And it's still going strong and it's still preaching the same doctrine that it had in the very beginning. It was begun with Baptist doctrine. And still today, Dr. Peter Masters, who's the pastor, preaches the doctrines of grace. They've not become a liberal church. They're stalwarts for the faith. So how does a church like that survive? Well, you give the glory to God. You go back and you read what the pastors down through those four centuries have believed and taught. And you'll find pastors there like Benjamin Keach, who was around for the signing, the drafting of the First London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1644. In that group of pastors, you'll find John Gill, who for 51 years pastored that church and is perhaps the greatest theologians that, theologian that Baptists have ever produced besides the Apostle Paul. And in that group, you find Spurgeon, who is called the Prince of Preachers. He was the most prolif- prolific uh, writer that we have in the Baptist church perhaps of all preachers. So he was called the Prince of Preachers. And you know what every one of those men had in common with Dr. Peter Masters today? It was undying devotion to the Word of God. Folks, no matter what we do, we must stick to the Word. We must preach the Word. We must uphold the truth of the Word. And if we don't, this church will not survive.
And here's the thing about it. When you preach the Word, when you preach it in truth, and when you hold on to this Bible, and you keep bringing it to church, and you keep studying it, and you stay in it, all Christian graces follow out and flow out of the Word of God. And so you'll find the compassion that's needed. You'll find the love that's needed. You'll find the ability to forgive someone who's harmed you. And you'll find the ability to stop all that gossip and all the things that go on because Christian graces flow out of the Word of God. So we keep preaching it and God keeps preserving us. That's the promise that He's made. And so we must be obedient to the Word of God. And we're still capable of turning the world upside down. And we can do it if we stick to the Word of God. So are we sticklers for doctrine? Does it make a difference to it? Yes, it does. We're very, very strict about our doctrine. Do we refuse to compromise? Yes. We refuse. Do we go along to get along? No. I don't care if you don't like what I preach. Well, I care. But it's not going to stop me if I think it's the truth. So, are we going to go, go along to get along? No. Are we going to bring our Bibles to church? Yes. Are we going to keep preaching the Bible? Yes. Do we stand by our historic Baptist statements of faith that are built upon the Word of God? And I'll tell you, yes. Why do we do it? Because it preserves the church. And it brings glory to God. Now, the power of... The church is still with us. The ability to defeat Satan is still here. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now, the offensive weapon that we have against Satan is the sword of the Spirit. And as you know, that's described as the Word of God. And to the degree that we abandon the Word of God, that's the degree of degradation that we'll have in the church. So we don't want to be a fading church, and we don't want to be a dying church. We want to be a church that's alive for Jesus. And we'll do that by standing for the faith once delivered to the saints. This is exactly what Scripture says. Jude wrote, Beloved, when I give all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now, I explained to you in a message three weeks ago now that when Jude wrote that, when he said contend for the faith, what he had in mind was the entire body of Christian doctrine. He's not particularly talking about saving faith there. He's talking about the whole body of faith, all of Christian doctrine, and we're to stand on every piece of it, whether we like it or not. We should love it all, but even if you don't like it, stand on it because it's God's Word. Now, let me close with this. How quickly can all of this change? In 1994, my father stepped down as the pastor of our church in Kentucky, it was for health reasons, so he had to step down. He'd been pastor of the church for 29 years. For 29 years, he was faithful to the Word of God. For 29 years, thousands of people passed through the doors of our church, and many, many, many people were saved. They heard the truth of God's Word. I learned what I know from my, from my father. He was that kind of a preacher. He was a very theological person. He taught me the Word of God. If you don't like what I preach, then blame him. 
or blame the Lord because that's where it came from. But when he stepped down, the church chose a new pastor. And to make a very long story short, he was not faithful to the word. And it's a short story because so was the survival of that church. Now this man said that he would stick to the doctrines that we taught, but he lied about that and he didn't. And he abandoned the doctrines of grace. And in less than 10 years, that church had been around for many, many years, of been a vibrant church, the church died. We had a beautiful building on seven acres of land. We were surrounded on the east side and the west side by thoroughbred horse farms in the bluegrass of Kentucky. Prime land. But as I said, less than 10 years, the church died and the building was sold. And today, there is a bunch of flaming charismatics that are in that building. So the church disappeared. It, it totally disbanded. And it was because a pastor stopped being true to the Word of God. And so I'm going to give you a warning tonight, and that is not to let it happen to this church. Preserve this church. Sometime I'm going to be gone. And when I'm gone, you need a pastor who preaches the truth. And I hope that over these many years I've given you what you should look for in a pastor. What kind of doctrines that you need to hear and what you need to listen for so that you'll know who to choose as a pastor. Now I'm not interested particularly in the legacy that I leave, only that I've taught you the Word of God and I do hope that you see that. I, I, like Paul, I want to give you the truth and then I want to warn you about what can happen to a church that doesn't hold on to God's truth. So listen to that warning and heed the warning because Jesus can stop preserving any individual church. And that means Berean Baptist Church as well. But he gave this promise. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Acts chapter 20 gives us the way that he will preserve his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we're so grateful that you've given us this church. We're thankful, Lord, that we can come together and sit around your word and not have any fear of preaching the truth and knowing that your people accept truth. And Lord, I pray that you'll always give us people that want to hear it and believe it. And we know as long as we're faithful to your word, you will continue to do that. Lord, we ask you to help us, help us to dedicate ourselves to you, help us to really show the world around us what we think of our church and how precious that it is and how precious the body of Christ is and what it truly means to us. Help us to do your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.